you believe in human rights and you don't just believe in them notionally. You don't just believe in the concept of, of compassion. You're an incredibly compassionate person. You live your life by these transcendent values that you cannot prove. You are not the rational person that you think that you are. You are already living according to beliefs that cannot be proved, that cannot be demonstrated under laboratory you know, in conditions. And therefore, my, my, my plea to you is not to take a leap of faith. My plea to you is to recognize you are already midair with your feet dangling and you need some ground beneath, beneath your feet. And it's only Jesus that will make sense of the human rights that you believe in. It's only Jesus that will make sense of equality and compassion and consent and all these other things that I say. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Our culture is completely pagan and anti-Christian. Take a look around, it's everywhere. From sexual identity to abortion, gun violence to the rise of the nuns. But what if the very things that are opposed to Christian behaviors and beliefs are born from, dare I say require, a Christian basis? Yes. Sounds strange to many of us. When I first encountered this idea, it seemed strange to me too, but the more that I've paid attention, the more that I've read and considered the positions of people like Tom Holland, no, not Spider-Man, he's an historian and he has written an eye-opening book called Dominion that has captured the minds and imaginations of so many Christian thinkers. Or when I interacted with thinkers like Christopher Watkin, who was on the show not too long ago talking about his book, Biblical Critical Theory, in which he showed both that Christians can out-narrate the world, or that is, tell a greater and more compelling story about how the world is what it is and what God is directing it to be. Watkin actually mentioned that the culture around us is attacking the church today with the very sticks of like equality and justice and tolerance that actually derive from Christianity. I mean, these sticks (laughs) come from the tree of Christianity, but they're denying the tree that it came from while holding the very stick. (laughs) Today, I'm talking with Glenn Scrivener. Watkin was a Brit living in Australia and Scrivener oddly enough, is an Aussie living in the UK. It's like they, you know, they're just switching positions. He's the director and evangelist for Speak Life, a UK ministry whose vision is to re-evangelize church and world through captivating Christ-centered communication. He is also the author of the recent book, The Air We Breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality, And that's why we are talking with him today. And his thesis is pretty simple. If you are a Westerner, you have been extraordinarily influenced by Christianity, whether you know it or not. And even if you were to go into places like India, there is an effect of Christianity upon the Indian culture. That's what Vishal Mangalwadi was talking about. Matter of fact, Scrivener says that we're all a lot like goldfish. They don't know that they're even in the water, but they can't live without it. In fact, in the intro to the book, he addresses those who aren't Christians and goes as far to say this. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact you don't notice it. 
you already hold particularly Christian-ish views. And the fact that you think of these values as natural, obvious, or universal shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. Booyah. Christianity has shaped us, whether you realize it or not. But honestly, if we look around the culture, we know that we have moored away from its center as a culture while still holding on to its benefits. Now, while the church still holds that core truth, the benefits and blessings that have come with it have been largely forgotten or left on the shelf. And both are needed for us to accomplish the mission God has for us today, to make his kingdom known and to invite people to be a part of it. It's actually a great connecting point when people can see these benefits or the, that we are benefits as the civilization of Christianity. It provides a natural bridge for them to see the very root and the core truth. But as I've said before, as I've interacted with Christian leaders, many Christian leaders are loving God. They want to preach the word of God, but they miss how Christianity has affected the greater culture or they deem it to be irrelevant. But if they do that, they're actually skipping over the very mechanism that often propels it forward into the mind of the greater culture, leaving the church spinning its own wheels, unable to get traction, left only to maintain what it already has without advancing. And if you're like us, you want to help pull the church out from its spiritual malaise so that it might gain traction and accomplish the purpose for which God intended it. If you resonate with this, then please join us as we seek to liberate the church from its cultural captivity and status quo. Just click the link in your show notes and help Jesus's church become what God wants her to be. Now, let's get to my conversation with Glenn Scrivener and let's see if his thesis holds true. Happy listening. Glenn Scrivener, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you so much for having me, Travis. Are you ready for the Fast Five? No, but go on. Okay. Your preferred fashion style is? Uh, shabby chic, but more of the shabby. I like that. Number two, <laughs> the strangest food you have ever eaten. My mother's cooking. No. Um, I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm from Australia, but I have, not, I have not had any of the, like, the witchetty grub type stuff. It's all very, it's all very boring from me. Sorry. <laughs> just really boring. You just like the basic stuff. Very, very basic. Yeah. What is the basic for you then? Growing up in Australia and now living in the UK, what is basic for you? Um, so we would, we would have uh, like spaghetti bolognese and we would oh. have lamb and three veg and th those sorts of things. But I, I, I do remember I loved having Thai green curry. It was my first week away from home, uh, going away to college and sitting down at the Chiang Mai kitchen on the high street of Oxford, eating a Thai green chicken curry for the first time in my life, putting my fork down, pushing the chair away from the table and saying, this tastes amazing. And it was kind of, yeah, it was a, a revelation to me. I like it when people can describe their food in such detailed ways and events. If I have a really good food, I have this tendency and I, I have this woman who will cook for me every once in a while. Not my wife. She's an older lady friend. And she loves to see how good the food is by how long I close my eyes to savor. <laughs> just to, wow. I like to stop and pull away from the chair and just savor the taste. It's just so, so good. All right. Here, here we go. Number three, your most relaxing day. Describe it. Uh, relaxing. I do like to play cricket, which, um, the, the good thing about cricket is that, um, it is an anaerobic 
<laughs> exercise <laughs> rather than aerobic. It's a, uh, yeah, it probably burns as many calories as brushing your teeth. So it takes all day to play. Uh, if you play internationally, then uh, it takes five days to play. So it's a very relaxing game. But uh, if, if baseball is played at the speed of life, then kind of cricket's kind of played at the speed of death, really. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly relaxing. I've never played cricket. I want you to must. play, though. You must. There's that, there's, yeah. Go ahead. Tell me about it. Groucho Marx was once uh, taken to um, an international cricket match between Australia and England about 100 years ago. And uh, he went to Lords, the, the home of, of cricket. And he, he'd been watching the game for an hour before he turned to his host and said, and when is the actual game beginning? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's cricket for you. <laughs> we actually have a lot of cricket matches going on where I'm at now. I'm in Northern Florida and we've had so many so many Indians moved to the area yeah, that right. they're playing yes. cricket. And so yes. I, I, I need to find a time to play. The, the time that it's they the play second biggest spectator sport in the world after soccer, Seriously. after football. Yeah. 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 That's huge. How is that? So, I mean, I know it's big. Well, in, India is the most populous country in the world and you know, India, and Pakistan, India and Pakistan can get a billion people watching a single game of cricket. Yeah. That is something that's, that's so foreign to me. But yeah. I, I, it makes sense. It made sense. Okay. Number Whereas one. Americans, you play your World Series baseball because <laughs> occasionally you invite the Toronto Blue Jays to play. It's like, <laughs> well, welcome to the world, <laughs> says America. Well done. <laughs> I've always laughed at that. I'm like, come on, people. Could we just say national? It's not the World Series. Come on. Oh, well, we get into terms and how they take on meaning of their own, which we'll get to that mm -hmm. in a minute. <laughs> All right. The, I mean, you're from Australia, but you're living in the UK. So Correct. the best thing about living in the UK is? I do like an indoors culture, pub culture, which is, it's different. You know, it's very different to a bar. Like going out to a bar in, in the States is very different to going to the pub in mm -hmm. Britain. Um, you go to a bar for one or two reasons in the States. You go to a pub for any number of reasons and they're very culturally, socially based in the UK. So that, that kind of sense of sitting around an open fire with friends, mm. enjoying a pint and a, a long conversation into the night. That's, that's pretty nice. That sounds so fabulous to me. I wish we had that pub culture idea here. Like even when I read Lewis and the Inklings and Eagle mm. and Child, I'm like, man, I just, yeah. even they shut that pub now. I know. And they're, they're not, they're not sure if they're going to ever reopen it. It's uh, yeah, it's a tragedy. I had, I had Jerry Root on and he was trying to get me to buy it. I was like, okay. why, why don't you buy it? He's like, I already have my own pub. It's in my basement. It's <laughs> like, come on. What is going on? Two Americans thinking of snapping up some pubs as a bit of memorabilia. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Every we cultural would, stereotype right there. That's right. And we would ruin it. <laughs> we would totally ruin it there. I don't want to ruin it. neon signs like with that. bud outside. <laughs> no, 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 no. You got to keep the essence of it. The UK has its own thing. Does Australia not have that, like that pub culture? It, uh, somewhat. Yeah. Australia is kind of stuck between England and America in, in, in lots of different ways. And yeah, pub, going to the pub means something different to the States, certainly. It, it, it is a bit more of a cultural uh, kind of phenomenon rather than just a place to drink or, or yeah. So it, it, is, it is a little more like the, like the UK, but, it, but it, it's probably more for your, your dedicated drinker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the best thing about living in the UK. And then I have a sub question because I don't want to go to the fifth one yet. But what's the worst thing about living in the UK? Uh, well, let me let me put it in a positive sense. I knew it. You were going to make it look good. Yeah. You, <laughs> you, you earn, you earn your summers here. <laughs> you certainly earn your summers. You're, that that week of summer that you get, <laughs> you really enjoy it. You really enjoy it. So yeah. I, I, when I was younger, I was looking at going to school at Aberdeen, University of Aberdeen. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was, I had a, I had a guy that I had seen online who was from Arkansas mm. in the States. And I really wanted to know what it was like living in the UK. And this was, this was, you know, early, early 2000s. So I sent him this email and he said, well, it's not so bad. If you don't mind not seeing daylight, having good food or American football, it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> my wife was like, you just described our lives. We can't live there. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I'll find, I'll find my mother in who's living in Australia. And I'll just say like, what's the weather there? She says, Oh, it's fine. I was like, no, but describe it. She says, Oh, it's, you know, it, it, using Celsius, you know, it's, it's 27 yeah. degrees. There's not a cloud in the sky. I, I guess it's pretty nice. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> just would not occur to you, you know, <laughs> I, I would Whereas say it, yeah. you miss daylight, right? I mean, you had so much more sun in Australia. A lot more. So I like I, I grew up in Canberra, which is quite close to the ski fields. It's the only inland city in Australia. So we're closer to skiing than we are to surfing in Canberra. And it gets pretty cold during the winter, but you have the sunlight. And I will trade you temperature for sunlight all day long. Mm. That is one of the reasons why I moved to Florida. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you get sunlight. The summers are brutal. Just brutal. Okay. You don't want to yeah. go outside. It's yeah. so hot. But yeah. right now, it's absolutely gorgeous. I, I don't even, I always have on shorts. It's just, it's better. Spring okay. in Florida. Mm, oh, spring. Have to suffer for God. Number mm. five, if your life were a movie, what would be the title and why? And who would star as you? I don't, I don't think of my life as a movie. I, how, about, um, how about a novel? A novel. It, yeah, the the memoir of a, a distracted fool. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, my my life is a lot more like a sitcom than it is like a movie. You know, and I think everybody's is, isn't it? Because in a, in a sitcom, you've got that sort of twenty one minute arc of a story, and it always returns you right back to where you started. There there is no kind of narrative development. There's no sort of character going through a redemptive process. There's there's just Homer begins the episode an idiot. He ends the episode an idiot. <laughs> or to put it in Jerry Seinfeld terms, you know, there's no hugs, no learning. Just, <laughs> it's a show about nothing. Yeah, my that that would be yeah. <laughs> Who would play you though? That would be. A, oh, I don't know. Um, Pete Postlethwaite was a uh, uh, a character actor in England. Who? Uh, yeah. No, I I don't know who would play me. Somebody, somebody said once that I looked a little bit like David Tennant, who was one of the Doctor Who's. Yeah. But um, hey, there you go. That Good for him. <laughs> Lucky guy. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about, I want to hear your bio. Let's hear okay. a little bit about your bio, where you grew up, your faith journey, and what ministry you're doing now. Okay. So I'm uh, Emma's husband. I'm Ruby and JJ's dad. I live in Eastbourne on the south coast of England. 
it's called the Sunshine Coast here, which is hilarious to my Australian family who, uh, <laughs> there is a Sunshine Coast in Australia, which is a little different. The sun actually shines there, but uh, I've been living in the UK for more than half my life. I came over first as a, like a 15 year old, lived in Wales and then England and then back to Australia and then back to England and back to Australia and then back to England. But give or take the odd deportation, I've mainly been here for the last 20 years, married to Emma, I'm a minister. Uh, I was ordained in the Church of England, but my day job is to work for an evangelistic ministry called Speak Life. And the ministry itself has been going for uh, 65 years, but it was founded really as a radio and preaching ministry. And it continues today as a ministry that sort of has these twin focal points of, of uh, preaching the gospel and then media. But media today means a lot of online stuff, so video, YouTube, social media, podcasts, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we we preach Jesus, we share Jesus online, and we try to train other people to do the same. I've seen your stuff, and you really do a very good job at hitting where people are at and where where they think. Which is which is one of the things that I found fascinating about this book, and I want to talk about the book. I had this recommended to me. I had someone quote it and called The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. So what was the impetus behind this book? I mean, what made you want to write this book? I'm very jealous of you because you're about to have Vishal Mangalwadi on your channel. And uh, I've been trying to get Vishal for for years. Um, He inspired me massively. 12 years ago now, I read The Book That Made Your World. And uh, he, as uh, an Indian thinker, was asking the question, why is the West different to the India that he grew up in? And he came to the conclusion it was absolutely the Bible and the church and the the message of Jesus has transformed the West and then through the West transformed uh, many parts of the world. And that was very interesting to me. And I started reading lots of other things on that same topic. And I remember getting a massive head rush, kind of reading David Bentley Hart's Atheist Delusions back in the day. And then I read a much more scholarly work, Larry Seidentop, uh, Inventing the Individual, and lots of different writers like this who were just noticing what ought to be obvious to us, but it's so often invisible. And that's the impact of Christianity on our moral intuitions, on our values, on the way we navigate life. And it sort of came together with a book by uh, Tom Holland, uh, a secular historian who wrote Dominion, uh, which was released in, in, I think, 2019. And I got, to, I got to talk to him in 2019, and I was just fascinated by him and his thesis that really it, it is the Christian revolution that, is, that has made the world. And, and Tom Holland would absolutely say that Christianity is the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. And he says that as a secular historian, and and the process of writing that book has brought him a lot closer to Christian faith. And I remember in 2019, getting him to sign a copy of the book, and I gave it to my father-in-law, who loves history and, and loves big ideas, but is not a Christian. And I thought, this is exactly the book for him. This will bring him closer. And I think uh, Tom Holland's Dominion, which is nearly 700 pages long, remains on my father-in-law's shelf, <laughs> completely unread. It's a long book. It's a big book. It's a long book. And so I thought to myself, it is a wonderful book. I, I love it. And, and it's, it's beautifully written as well. Gripping, gripping read. 
So I decided I wanted to write a kind of a dominion for dummies and I'm the dummy. And to write it from a more confessional Christian point of view. And, uh, and so, yeah, I began work on The Air We Breathe and, and yeah, out it's come. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Maybe that's why I was enjoyed your book so much. I finished Dominion like a week and a half ago. And it just was a natural segue. It was all seeing him quoted, seeing John Dixon quoted, seeing Rodney Stark quoted throughout the book. And, and history is such one of our, it's one of our values. It's, it's just one of the things that we really do value because we want to go back and see how history has shaped us. Which leads me to my next question. You, you quote L.P. Harley. I think that's his name. He said that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Why is it so important for us to look over the past to see, to understand our present? It's uh, one way of doing bias training. One way of doing bias training is to go to another culture and to figure out the, the things that you thought were natural, obvious, and universal are anything but. Just go to someone else's Christmas you know, be, be a guest in someone else's Christmas. And all of a sudden you recognize that they're getting Christmas wrong and they don't even realize they're getting Christmas wrong because they're, they're, they're doing the wrong traditions. And then it is obvious to you um, that they have a culture and it is invisible to you that you have a culture. That's what happens when you cross any kind of cultural boundary. And another way of crossing a cultural boundary is, is not just going to somebody else's Christmas or going to somebody else's country, but, but going to the past. And when you read um, the stories, the biographies of, of people in other times and places, you, just, you recognize how weird you are, or at least you ought to. Normally, we have this thing that C.S. Lewis described as chronological snobbery in which you are the measure of all things and everyone else is getting it wrong. But if you can look to the past with any sense of humility, you, you suddenly see yourself in a different light. And, you know, uh, I forget, was it Samuel Johnson who said that he knows not England who only England knows. And it's that sense of you, you know, not your times. If your times are the only things you, that you know. And so, yeah, going, going back in history is a wonderful way of seeing yourself again and seeing the times in which we live. It's all in our this life of time that's given to us all it gathers round 
You've gathered these seven, you call them seven. How do you qualify by the way? It said seven values. modern values, but you yeah. also have landmarks. I mean, I guess they are values. Yeah, the values, moral intuitions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So these seven major moral intuitions, that's fun to say. In the development of the Christian story and how it shapes Western civilization. So we have equality, compassion, consent, which that one was an interesting one for me. Enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Why these seven? I mean, were there more or did you just figure, I mean, how did you come up with these seven? Um, there was a point at which I had six and then I thought, you can't just have six. You've got to have seven. You know, this, <laughs> to be biblical. <laughs> It'd be like saying I've sailed the six seas. No, no, you got one more to go. One more to go. Actually, I'm, I am not only taking you through seven, seven different values. I'm also taking you through seven different epochs. So in one sense, equality maps onto the Old Testament, compassion maps onto the New Testament, consent maps onto the early church, enlightenment maps onto the medieval period, science maps onto the, the scientific revolution, freedom maps onto abolition, and progress maps onto the 20th century and beyond. And so in one sense, I'm giving you a, a history lesson from Genesis to George Floyd. In another sense, I'm kind of masking that. I'm kind of putting the, as you do with your dog, you put the pill into the, into the <laughs> mincemeat. And instead of telling you that I'm giving you a history lesson, which I kind of am, I'm taking you through these seven moral intuitions that you already have, but that you haven't examined and, and trying to, to, to go through that. Yeah, I could have, I could have chosen some more. For instance, I, I, there was a chapter on kind of heroism and, and the stories that we tell mm. um, that, was, that was one of my chapters that ended up on the cutting room floor because you can't have eight either. That's wrong. <laughs> you got to have seven. <laughs> Were you going to use Joseph Campbell? Uh, I, he was mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, was, absolutely. Yeah, this, this, yeah, the, the, that whole monomyth stuff that Joseph Campbell talks about in terms of the, the stories that we all tell certainly since Star Wars have taken a, a certain shape and it's because Joseph Campbell was kind of popularizing this, this idea of the monomyth, the, you know, the hero with a thousand faces. And the reason why every Marvel, you know, cinematic universe story takes the same shape is that they're just running you through the playbook of step, the inciting incidents and you step out into the void and you go down into the deepest depths and you fight to the death and somehow through sacrifice you win and you return to the place where you began, but you're wiser for the journey and all that kind of stuff. We think that that's obvious, natural and universal. Actually, you look at the stories of the world and they're far more like Aesop's fables. Mm -hmm. Aesop's fables are just like, yeah, there was once this idiot who you like cried wolf total jerk. Wait, what's, <laughs> what's he doing? And in the end, he gets eaten. The end. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's Grimm's fairy tales. Well, no, they do both do that. Do that. Yeah, Grimm's fairy tales are pretty bad. You yeah. read them and you're like, oh, wow. They... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had yeah. no idea they were that graphic and that bad. I mean, we really, we've kind of, you know, just sanitized them for our, our, yeah. modern, our modern culture. You yeah, know, I remember I was in a class when I was an undergraduate and there was a, uh, the, the prof was getting ready to write a, a, a course called religion and science fiction film. Hmm. And I remember sitting there going, what, like, what a weird class. And he's like, you know, Jesus is all over science fiction. And we were like, what? He goes, I, actually, he said to us, he goes, throw out a movie. And somebody goes, E.T. He goes, 
comes from heaven, does nothing but heal, love people, persecuted, dies, rises again, and goes back up to heaven. Like, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe yeah. it. It was already there. Oh, yeah. anyway. And then you get, okay. but yeah, but then you get, so like something like Prometheus is like within the alien cinematic universe and very much wanting to get in touch with the more ancient Greek myths, you know, of, of, of Prometheus. And, and to go up into the heavens is to go up into a place where there are malign forces that absolutely want you dead. And, and so, yeah, like we still, we still have remembered how to tell more classical stories. But they they always strike us as the photo negative of, of the gospel and and the the ET story in which the alien is you know a, a a benign force who you know wants to come and save us and go through death and resurrection. Those those are, those are the stories that resonate with us more. Why? Because of the triumph of Christianity. Knee-jerk reaction is fight or flight. First sign of color, I run and hide. You came like rain on a summer night And I think you're rewiring my mind I've been taking cover under my skin But I wanna step outside and take it all in You, you set the table at first. You talk about our weird values. The weird. I, I had not, I'd seen that acronym someplace else before. Was it Holland that mentioned that? I, I he might remember. have done. Yeah. I mean, they come from Joseph Henrik. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now I remember. What does it mean? Because my audience is probably wondering, going, what are you talking about right now? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be weird? And how yeah. did Christianity shape that? It's an acronym and it stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's highly likely that you are weird. And What's fascinating is Joseph Henrik came up with this. He's an evolutionary biologist at Harvard. And uh, he and his colleagues came up with this acronym to describe the context in which so many psychological tests have been done. And so within universities, the easiest population to do psychological tests on are students. Um, Because if if you're running a psychological, you know, study in a university, then they are the most um, available, you know, survey sample that you can get. And if you just offer them a slice of free pizza, they are there and they will participate in your silly little study. And, and, but what, what therefore happens is that in all these psychological studies that are done around the world, they are almost always done in weird cultures with these Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic people. And so what so much of psychology has deemed to be the normal human psychology is in fact a very specific, very particular, weird psychology. And this, this has massive implications for what we think of as obvious and natural and just the functioning of a, of a normal working human brain. Turns out to be nothing of the sort. It turns out to be something that has been absolutely shot through with Western assumptions, which when you press into them are actually Christian-ish assumptions. Mm. So what we think of as natural psychology has actually been, been built by Christianity in so many ways. And Joseph Henrik, again, not, not a Christian, but just he, wrote, he writes this book called The Weirdest People in the World. And it's a big fat book about why Western brains are so, so different. And he is absolutely crystal clear. It's because of Christianity. And in his introduction, he says, you know, some of that is to do with literacy and sort of Protestants were very hot on getting people literate. 
And that does shape human brains in lots of different ways. And you can explain some of the effect on Western psychology in terms of literacy. But even when you do that, it's Christianity that's, that's made the difference. But the biggest thing he says is actually the marriage and family program that Christianity has sort of brought to the West. And he traces through the ways in which Christian sexual ethics have absolutely shaped Western culture from the ground up. It's made us weird. It's made us prosperous. It's made us very, very different. And I'm just trying to press, I'm, again, I'm trying to take us out of our culture and show us pre-Christian cultures and help us to think about non-Christian cultures and just say, hey, we're actually weird. And you know why we're weird? Because of Jesus. Well, that leads to this idea. I, I want to walk through these piece by piece because you're right. And, and as you develop the thought in the book and how this is shaped, I was, I was excited because you do see these things. Like, well, let's start off with the quality. It, it, you don't even just start off with the quality. You actually start talking about how the ancient world saw equality. It was a myth. It really didn't even, it, it didn't happen at all. Like, how did you write it? You said, you talk, you talk about ancient thinking was his belief in ancient equality, inequality. Why is it so important today? What was even the quote you had started off? It said, you couldn't imagine if people would, they would even see people as equal. Oh, yeah. You even start off with Lord, Lord Sumption in mm -hmm. January of 2021. I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. I mean, that gets you right there from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, Lord Sumption, in the thing that he was saying, um, was making perfect sense. But everything erupted around him because you cannot violate such a transcendent value. You, you must come across like a heretic, like a blasphemer. And he absolutely was. <laughs> it, was it was a case of burn the heretic for saying that all lives are not of equal value. Because, you know, we've just imbibed this sense that obviously every, no, no matter your sexuality, no matter your, your race, no matter your religion, no matter your culture, no matter your class, no matter how much money you've got, how much strength you've got, we're all equal, right? And that is taken to be such a commonplace and uh, such an unarguable truth. It's axiomatic in the West that all people are equal. But look in nature, and nature does not teach you that all things are equal. Like take any two people and assess them by any one measurement and you will discover that they are different. This one is faster than that one. This one is stronger than that one. This is one is more economically productive than that one. This one is richer than that one. This one is from a higher socioeconomic class. This one is from a different race. This one is a slave. This one is a master. This one, like when you look at two people, all you will see is difference, right? In what sense are they equal? Like what, what is this magical realm in which equality, I've just told you all the ways that they're, that they're different. And every ancient thinker, and I talk about Plato and Aristotle, every ancient thinker was just noticing nature. And for an ancient thinker, justice meant enforcing the inequalities that nature has woven into life. Baked into the cosmos are inequalities. Who on earth do you think you are if you want to equalize people, nature has not presented to you equality as like, where, where do you read this, you know, transcendent value from? Where do you get this idea from? The ancient world doesn't teach it. Nature itself doesn't teach it. Who teaches it? Jesus teaches it. Right? The Bible teaches it. And it's a good one for just showing people that they are already believers. Mm. You know, I've, I've got a lot of secular friends who just, they, they think I'm a believer and they're not. And yet you press into a value like that and you recognize just what ardent believers they really are. You know, one of the things that we talk about all the time on this show is that God always leaves 
embedded in a culture, something that the Bible affirms of who he is. And then something that like the Bible challenges something in a culture, but it affirms something in a culture. You know, Dan Strange called it magnetic points. And, and you've identified these values that are there. There are transcendent. People do value them. And it was fun to kind of drill down as you, you took us on that journey. And it was a little shocking hearing about Plato and Aristotle basically say, Slaves exist to be ruled. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Does not is, nature teach you that yeah. some are born to rule and some are born to be ruled over? And that was such a rebuke to just our modern modern sense. Like, no, slavery is evil. And then you actually talk about that. Where do we get this idea that slavery is bad? You trace that thread all the way back to it. And, and I don't know. I was just really blown away. And, and one of the things that you really, you really brought out was this idea of human rights. And not all the, let me put it this way, not that the ancients and moderns have noted that the God story and the equality story stand or fall together. That's what you said. Mm -hmm. Like they do go together. And, and you wrote this, if we feel that life is sacred, that every human possesses an inviolable dignity and equality, and that no one deserves to be trampled down simply because they're smaller or weaker or poorer, then we are standing on a particularly biblical foundations. How so? Because why should you protect the weak? Why should you, why should you accord to every single human life an equal moral dignity and worth? On, like on, on what basis? Because when you measure different people, they will come up on whatever metric you have, they will come up with a different value. You know, if, so if, if I assess these two people, one of them will have more, more money than the other. One, one of them will be um, stronger than the other. One of, one of them, you know, one of them will be smarter than the other. And whatever, whatever metric you design, they will have a different value, right? They will, like, so what is the metric that you're putting above these two people that says they have the same value? And at that point, you, like, people might say, well, they're both human, aren't they? Well, it's interesting, like Joseph Goebbels said, I do not deny that the Jew is also a human. Neither do I deny that. Uh, what is not, neither do I deny that uh, an insect is also an animal, right? And 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 he's just like, what follows from the fact that two people are humans? And we say, oh, because they're humans, they have rights. No, 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 no. Where where does that come from? Where do these rights come from? And it's it's always the case that if if people start questioning human rights, it's always because they identify that human rights have come to us from a particularly biblical foundation that on page one, male and female in God's image, they have an inviolable worth and dignity, not because of any properties within them, but because God has so dignified them from above. You need something from outside the system to value humans inside the system. Otherwise, we're just going to find systems within ourselves that will sort us out into higher and lower. You've got to have something outside the system that values each person with this with this moral dignity and worth. Um, and you know there are there are lots of people. Jeremy Bentham called human rights nonsense on stilts. Yuval Noah Harari today, author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, and and he doesn't believe in human rights. Why doesn't he believe in human rights? Because they he's, he's like it's obvious they just come to you from the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, why would you believe in human rights? Peter Singer he doesn't want to sign the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Why? Because it's a foundationally religious text and he's not a religious person, he's an atheist. You know, of, of course these things come from Christianity. In this dark night, it's too hard for me to say now. 
If the rays of hope will shine again someday And if I might be spared as the tempest starts to swell At this point it's just too dark to tell Was the stars guiding me to God's shores now? Was the devil set me drifting once more? Will these clouds ever lift and the map again reveal? At this point, it's just too dark to tell. You mentioned the court case, and I don't remember what chapter it was in, where the person was disagreeing with transgenderism in the court. He cited Genesis 1, that we were made in God's image, and they said that that was wrong. But how do you even have, how can you say that something is inherently wrong just because there is so much within this concept of human rights, this understanding of who we are as individuals that we have imbibed it so much. We don't even realize it until it's challenged. So this idea in that court case, do you remember the court case I'm talking about? Yeah. So David, David Macarth was a a, a GP, has to be a Christian. And at one point in a uh, selection process for a particular job, um, he was asked whether he would use the pronouns of 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 somebody who presented themselves to him, and he said, "If they are a fifty year old man with a beard and they want to be known as uh, as she her, he wouldn't because uh, medically he needs to treat a person according to their biological sex that has medical ramifications. He didn't get the job, and then he went to an employment tribunal. The judge in the in the employment tribunal said, "David Macarth, you've cited a religious reason for." your refusal to use those those pronouns you've cited genesis chapter 1 but that view is not worthy of respect in a democratic society and what's fascinating is that the very verse that he was quoting from genesis chapter 1 that male and female were made in god's image is the very foundation for rights that the tribunal was was meant to actually be assessing and so it's it's very much a case of modern culture is soaring off the branch on which we're sitting Absolutely. And it seems that the more that we pro- progress, we're actually cutting the branch we're sitting on. Yeah. It, 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 so when you, when you talk about this, what is the reaction that you find from your secular friends and those who listen? Very quickly, because, because my friends, so like I, I said that I wrote this book for my father-in-law. I also wrote this book for a friend of mine who is not a Christian, a humanist, a much nicer human being than me. And in a sense, I wrote this book to show her that she is a believer, the same as me. Because I remember she, she once wrote a letter where she said, I hope you realize that I could never be a believer. And I remember thinking at that stage, it was like 10 years ago, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, but you believe in so many things. You believe in human rights and you don't just believe in them notionally. You have gone and helped you know, charities and, and schools across, you know, in, in other parts of the world that are poorer. You have, you don't just believe in the concept of, of compassion. You're an incredibly compassionate person. You live your life by these transcendent values that you cannot prove. You are not the rational person that you think that you are. And so I kind of wrote this book for, for her to, to say to her, you are already living according to beliefs that cannot be proved, that cannot be demonstrated under laboratory, you know, conditions. And therefore, my 
my, my plea to you is not to take a leap of faith. My plea to you is to recognize you are already midair with your feet dangling and you need some ground beneath, beneath your feet. And it's only Jesus that will make sense of the human rights that you believe in. It's only Jesus that will make sense of equality and compassion and consent and all these other things that I say. And so that's the argument that I try to make. The next move that my friend makes and the next move that so many non-Christians make when they when they hear this argument is to say, okay, maybe Christianity happens to have helped us get to these humanistic values. I am willing to agree with Tom Holland and all these other historians who absolutely say that the West has been built by Christianity. Sure, but that's an accident of history. It is not inherent to Christianity. It is not unique to Christianity. And we would have gotten here anyway. That is like that is 90% of how people respond to this book if they're not Christians. They say, fine, fair enough. Christianity happens to have been the handmaiden that's helped us to get. It's like it's like the 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 booster rocket. You're in Florida. It's like the booster rocket that sort of helps mm-hmm. you get most of the way out out into the troposphere, and then you jettison the booster rocket so that the 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 space shuttle can can blast off into the the wonders of of humanism. You know, beyond beyond its Christian past. That's that's where most of my progressive liberal non Christian friends go. And then I want to press into, why do you think we would have gotten here anyway? They say, oh, we, we would have gotten to human rights anyway, regardless of this Christian history, which is a remarkably theological position to take, as though human rights are hanging in the ether, waiting to be discovered until at some points through the vagaries of history, we've, we've you know, gone one way and then the other. We've, we've happened upon this inviolable dignity and worth to the human person, this, this sort of moral value. What kind of universe do you think we live in such that human rights were not invented but were discovered? See, we don't, we don't say that Isaac Newton invented gravity. Gravity was doing just fine you know, in the years before the 1700s. Gravity was there. He discovered a thing that was already there. But my secular humanist friends want to say, Christianity, sure. Christianity is like Isaac Newton that sort of helped us to get to this thing and to formulate this thing called human rights. But we don't need, we don't need Newton anymore in order to have gravity. And we don't need Christianity anymore in order to have human rights. We're like, well, let's keep on following that argument. Is human rights woven into the fabric of the cosmos the way gravity is woven physically into the, into, the, into the fabric of the cosmos. Is that what you're saying? And <laughs> it's an incredibly theological vision for life. And then, and then you just got to ask, on what basis? And, and Tom Holland says about this, you know, to believe that human rights just hang there waiting to be discovered is as theological an idea as that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father. It's this axiomatic faith position that you want to take. And, you know, if you want to take it, fine, you can take it. But at least there's evidence for the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. what, what evidence are you going to bring in support of human rights? And be very careful before you bring that evidence. Because whatever you say is evidence for our human equality will start to be a feature that some people have and some people lack. You actually don't want evidence when it comes to human rights 
You want it to be a faith position that you take axiomatically? You could just decide that uh, just by fiat, we're just going to say, you know, in this society, we're going to believe in this nonsense called human rights. You could do that, but at that, but at that stage, you know that you're not being moral. You're, you're just arbitrarily choosing one set of values over another. Rain is pouring down upon the memory of the storm. Worries in the hollows, regret is in the storm. You Richard Dawkins, in, who is one of those people that have tried to point out some of these areas, who gives a recommendation to a couple to abort their Down syndrome baby. People respond, responded with outrage. And again, you go back historically, because he's really not off the mark there. Historically speaking, he's in line with some of the other thinkers. First of all, why is it such a surprise to people that he would say that when he's compared historically? And two, how is it so difficult for people to see how far we've moved in that regard to where we're at now? Yeah. When people are outraged at that, it's their Christianity that's getting outraged, right? <laughs> that's, that's, it's their Christianity that is troubling them about that. Because Dawkins is absolutely right to say when, when people were outraged at him, he pointed out quite rightly, why are you getting outraged? This is in fact what 98% of all mothers do when they discover Down syndrome in the womb. This is, in fact, what our human society is doing, right? I'm only advising somebody to do what actually the vast majority of our, of our, of our society does indeed do when they are put into this position. And we can add to what Richard Dawkins say, says and say that down through history, it is, in fact, what human civilizations have always done with disabled children, right? Infanticide is near enough to a human universal. You know, T Tacitus wrote about a couple of Germanic tribes that, that were discovered um, back in the first century that, that did not practice infanticide. And it was so noteworthy that he had to write it down. Oh, it's remarkable. They don't kill their disabled children. They don't kill their little girls. It, it has always been a feature of human civilizations that they kill off the weak, the low, and the botched, as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche would have put it. And so Dawkins, in saying, you know, abort a disabled child and, and try again, is saying, A, what our culture does in fact do, and B, what cultures around the world and down through history have always done. And so in fact... <laughs> The thing I want to point out in that whole Richard Dawkins affair is actually the response to Richard Dawkins, because Dawkins is not historically an outlier. Historically, Richard Dawkins is just recommend, you know, the very, the very first manual of midwifery was from the first century, um, a Roman manual of midwifery. The first chapter of this Roman man manual of midwifery is entitled on how to discern the offspring worth raising. That's job number one. Okay. If you're a midwife, 
If you're standing at the gate to life, you want to figure out if it's worth raising this child. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and they, they've, got to, they've got to qualify for life. They've got to, you know, and, and absolutely, it is a violation of our transcendent value of equality and our transcendent value of compassion. It's absolutely a violation of those things. But who taught us those things? It's Jesus who taught us those things. And so the outrage at Richard Dawkins for saying what he said is a, Christ, it's a distinctively Christian outrage. You ask the question, how do we get to where we, where we are in our society? And, and there is still outrage at the idea of infanticide in our culture, which is, as Peter Singer points out, a, a somewhat inconsistent posture to take. What is the difference between you know, a five-minute-old baby and the existence of that baby, you know, 10 minutes earlier. What is the morally significant difference between a baby on one side of the birth canal and on the other side of the birth canal? Peter Singer is entirely right to point out that we are inconsistent on this. And if you allow for abortion on that side of the birth canal, why do you not allow for infanticide on the other side of the birth canal? He's entirely right to points to our inconsistency. And he's entirely right to point out that the reason why we're uncomfortable with this is Christianity. But pressing further, it's fascinating to me that the issue of the unborn in our culture, even as we take a particularly traditional, non-Christian approach to the unborn in our culture, and we search and destroy as Richard Dawkins was advising this woman to do, if, if you detect Down syndrome, then you are to destroy that child. We still practice this very pagan practice, right? We, we, we are still in this very pagan mindset. But in order to forward the ends of the, of the pro-choice movement, we have to dress it up in Christian language. And that's what's different. I, I wish that we were thoroughly, such a thoroughly Christian society that we used not only Christian language, but actually followed through on it mm. and actually um, valued every single human life, uh, whether unborn or born. What's happened in our society, we've become so Christianized that still there are those who, who, who practice abortion, but they do so using the rhetoric that Christianity has taught us. So it's about choice which again is something that Christianity has brought into the world. This idea of consent, this idea of the individual whose rights cannot be lost in the shuffle, whose rights cannot be traded away for the, you know, the, the powerful and the strong. This idea of choice, this idea of bodily autonomy, again, it's a profoundly Christian idea. This idea that it is healthcare. Well, my goodness, like who, who, who is it? who brought hospitals to the world? Who is it who brought this idea of, of compassionate care to all and especially to the weak and needy and the sick and the vulnerable? It's a, it's a women's issue and men don't have a right to say because there's a power differential and women should be given that dignity to have their own voice. Like who is it who's taught the world that kind of gender equality? Who is it who's taught the world choice? Who is it that's taught the world bodily autonomy? Who is it who's taught the world healthcare? And one of the markers of how Christianized our discourse has become is that even as, we, even as people advocate for entirely pagan practices, they cannot help but do it and forward it 
in Christian language. They dress it up in Christian language. You talk about consent in this idea of dressing it up in Christian language. I mean, you talk about how our culture gets outraged in a variety of these different things, and they don't realize what Christianity, how it's influenced their outrage today. In talking about consent, you start with understanding or helping people see the views of sexuality in the ancient world, specifically the Roman Empire. And note that our modern concept of sexual abuse would, be, would have been nonsense to a free, freeborn Roman man. Why? Because it's been taught to us by Christianity. I mean, the, the Me Too movement, um, as Tom Holland points out at the end of his book, Dominion, is a, a profoundly Christian impulse to have. Because what do you call a Harvey Weinstein by the standards of other cultures, what do you call a Harvey Weinstein by the standards of, of Rome? It's business as usual. Of, of course, men are more powerful and have more rights in their society, thinks a Roman. And why do we think there's such a thing as bodily autonomy? Why do we think that, that power differentials are there so that the powerful ought to serve the weaker? Why is it that we think that sex is so significant such that sexual violations are a uniquely egregious kind of sin? Why, why, why do we think that? Um, Kyle Harper wrote a, a fascinating book. It's one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years is um, From Shame to Sin. And he basically charts the sexual revolution. And when we think of the sexual revolution, we think of the 1960s and Kyle Harper says, no, no, you need to go back 1900 years before the swinging 60s. The sexual revolution that has absolutely transformed our world is the Christian sexual revolution in which Christ comes along and in Matthew 19 says, okay, um, the only place for sexual activity is one man, one woman for life. The doors are locked. No one gets out of that thing alive. That's, that's it. And if you don't want to do that, then there's this other option and it's chaste singleness for life. But um, that's it. <laughs> and, and Karl Harper has this beautiful phrase. He says, um, all, the diffuse, all of the world's diffuse erotic energy was to be cramped into one frail sacred union. And the diffuse erotic energy that Karl Harper speaks of there, he goes into in nauseating detail in From Shame to Sin. And, and he talks about how the, the, the Greco-Roman culture of the day was a sexual free-for-all if you were an elite man. An, an elite man had the right to possess the bodies of anyone who was his inferior. Women, girls, boys, slaves, prostitutes. Um, brothels were state-sponsored. A trip to the brothel would set you back the cost of a, a loaf of bread. Uh, there are 25 Latin words for prostitute. There's not a single Latin way of referring to an adult male virgin. If you say virgin in Latin, you are referring to a, a woman because an adult male virgin is not a thing in that car, just not a thing in that society. And, and that's partly one of the cultural reasons why Jesus kind of uses in Matthew 19, the language of being a eunuch for the kingdom, because, because <laughs> like it's Christianity that kind of creates this category for chaste singleness. And it utterly, it utterly transforms the world. So Kyle Harper's book, From Shame to Sin, talks, uh, talks about it. 
this other book by Joseph Henrik that I've already uh, mentioned, The Weirdest People in the World. It is that marriage and family program that has utterly transformed the world. And, and out of it has come from, from this covenant union of male and female together for life. What happens is that the man is now tied to his woman and tied to his offspring in a way that nature doesn't tie him. A man is not biologically tied to his offspring in any way, not biologically, right? So he, he can have as many children with as many different women as, as he likes biologically. It, it is only culture that can constrain and restrain rampant male sexuality. And rampant male sexuality in the wild is not good for the flourishing of humanity. And Joseph Henrik, for instance, in, in his book, sort of charts all the reasons just from a purely biological um, point of view and a sociocultural point of view, why we must restrain rampant male sexuality. And, and it's the Christian sexual ethic that has absolutely done that to the point where the swinging 60s comes and tries to sort of let the genie out of the bottle again. And fascinatingly, again, it has to do this very pagan thing using Christian language, okay? In the first century, men were told to be as restrained in their sexual appetites as women had always been expected to be. In the 1960s, the equalizing goes in the other direction. And basically through the technology of the pill and through abortion, the tie between sex and kids is cut. And so notionally, what that then means is that women can now be as liberated as men had always been. And so in, instead of men being restrained, the idea is women become liberated and equalized through the sexual revolution. And just notice the language. Again, you know, why is freedom such a, a huge value for us? And, and why is the equality of the sexes such a massive value for us? It totally is. And, and, why, and, and we ought to be compassionate for women who have been repressed in lots of different ways and restrained and, and, and restricted from the flourishing lives that, that um, they might otherwise have led. But the idea that our liberation is best served by rampantly letting all, you know, ca casting all uh, caution to the wind in the, in the sexual realm is somehow for our flourishing. Well, we've had about six decades to show us the folly of that. But what's fascinating is, is to say anything against the sexual revolution is, is, is often thought of as a way of demeaning women in particular and demeaning these sort of culturally transcendent values of, of equality and compassion and consent. When actually what has happened since the 1960s is through technology, we have let the genie out of the bottle and actually have allowed men to again lead the way in that, that rampant exercise of, of, of their own sexuality. And it has absolutely like run riot through our society. It's epitomized in people like Harvey Weinstein. Our first inclination that Harvey Weinstein has done something wrong is not uh, a purely secular, humanist, progressive value. The idea that Harvey Weinstein should have restrained his sexuality, that he should not have treated women as property, he should, he should not have used people but honored them, and that sex is such a sacred thing that transgressing those boundaries is a particularly egregious form of evil. That instinct that, that he has gone wrong in those ways, that, that, that is profoundly Christian. Not only in regards to women, but you mentioned children. 
Yeah. You actually talk about the, the sexual abuse of children. And as you've already alluded to, it wasn't uncommon for Romans could sleep with anybody, children especially. Describe that for a bit. What, why and what did Christianity do to help change that? So pederasty was absolutely celebrated in the, in the ancient world. Greek and Roman authors would, would write odes about what a wonderful thing it was for older men to initiate children into the ways of, of sex and sexuality, and, and especially uh, boys. And it was called pederasty, and that's, uh, that's a word that means child love. Now, Jews and Christians were always uh, opposed to the practice, and they called it by a different name. They called it pedophthoria which means child destruction. So what the ancient world celebrated as love, Christians and Jews saw as abuse, and they named it as abuse. And it was when there were Christian emperors that, that suddenly even slaves could prosecute their owners for sexual violations. And, could, and there was like a statute of limitations that didn't run out for like decades and decades. It was, like, it was incredibly progressive kind of um, legislation that came in to protect slaves, women, and children from these elite men who had always thought that they just had the right to possess whatever bodies that, that they had. And so what's interesting is that, you know, almost the taboo in sex nowadays is pedophilia. It's, it's, in prison populations, you know, the, the, the lowest rung of the ladder are the, are the pedophiles. And we still have this sense that, that pedophilia is the, is the worst kind of crime. But, but again, it, it was absolutely Christian developments in history that have taught us that children are not sexual objects and that male sexuality in particular absolutely must be restrained and, and, and that consent is an absolutely vital component to sexual relationships. We live in a society now where consent is the only value brought to bear when it comes to sex. Um, but modern society can thank Christians that, that consent is there at all. When we look at all of these developments over time, and again, you've rooted them. I mean, you talk about what was practiced in Rome, the progression of how Christianity changed that, where we got to now. But it seems as I talk to people, especially older Christians here in where I'm at, they're surprised just how much things have changed in the last 25 years. Yeah. There's been a massive shift. What has helped aid in that mm. shift? It's a post-Christian shift. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis talked about the difference between post-Christianity and pre-Christianity. We are not living in a pagan culture because even those who we might describe nowadays as pagans have been so thoroughly Christianized. And he said it's a, a, the, the difference between a post-Christian culture and a pre-Christian culture is a bit like the difference between a, a maiden and a divorcee. Having gone through marriage, you're in a different kind of position to where you were before. And, and I think our culture, our culture is not a maiden. <laughs> our culture has been uh, Christianized in lots of different ways. And we've come out the other side and in so many ways, what you do if you, if you take the value, let's say, of equality and you divorce it from the Christian story, you end up with something like individualism, okay? Like, it's Christianity that has taught us that we are made in God's image and, you know, within the church, there are no lords except Christ himself. And we're all brothers and sisters. And, and that gives us this, that has invented the individual social, socially and politically. In the post-Christian West, 
we don't have the Lord Jesus over us anymore. We don't believe in the image of God anymore. It's just, I have my rights. Well, that's going to lead to a heck of a lot of individualism, expressive individualism. Compassion in the Christian story is about, well, be a good Samaritan. If there's someone who's a victim by the side of the road, help them. Do the Christ-like thing and, and honor and praise you know, victims. Um, nowadays, in the post-Christian West, we have what we call uh, competitive victimhood. Okay? In the, we, we, we're not racing to help the victim. We're racing to become the victim. And because compassion has become this transcendent value, but divorced from Christ and the gospel, it just sort of hangs there in the ether and, and be kind becomes a hashtag and a cover for all manner of cruelty and intolerance in the name of compassion, right? When you divorce these values from Christ and from his gospel, a lot, is, a, a lot gets distorted. So we've got individualism, competitive victimhood, and then the third value I talk about in the book is consent. And as I say, divorced from Christ and his gospel, consent has become the only value to bring to bear in the sexual realm. And so your choice determines everything in matters of sex. So what do you have in a culture that is individualistic, it's into competitive victimhood, and where choice, especially choice in sexual matters, determines everything? Well, you, you, get, you get the sexual climate that we've got in which my, my choice, especially around sexual matters, my individual choice, and no one can tell me different, my biology can't tell me any different, it's not, it's not about anything in nature. It's not anything about anything in culture. It's certainly not about anything in church or God or religion or any sense of authority. Me as an individual, I am making choices as regards sex and sexuality and gender. And even if that puts me into a, a tiny minority, I'm, I'm in a minority that ought to be lauded and preserved and protected. What our sexual culture is all about is it's, it's not a pagan sexuality. It's a post-Christian sexuality. And it's been, it's been forged by Christian-ish values. It's also been aided and embedded by all sorts of technology because, you know, through the pill and through abortion, mm -hmm. the, link between, the, the link between sex and kids, which is what ought to make us sane about sex and sexuality. And it is what has made... <laughs> Society's more or less sane-ish about sex and sexuality around the world now through history. That's been cut. And, and that's what enables us to fly free of culture, fly free of nature, and instead construct our own sexual identities individually and according simply to my own choice. Consequences be damned, culture be damned, nature be damned. And that's the moment we're, that we're in. Which is very depressing. But <laughs> there's... There, where do you see hope? I, I see a lot of hope in the storm that has come since the 1960s has revealed um, the foundations. And we've moved off the rock of Jesus Christ and we've moved on to sinking sand. And actually what storms do is they reveal the foundations. And there are a lot, a lot, a lot of refugees from the sexual revolution um, to use Russell Moore's phrase, refugees from the sexual revolution who are seeking for a place of, of, of refuge and safety. And 
And many of them are finding it in the church. Um, I've just uh, interviewed a, a woman called Louise Perry, a, a feminist here in the UK. And she's gone on a fascinating journey from um, being very much, uh, has no, no great Christian background whatsoever. Uh, she worked in a rape crisis center in her 20s. And the rape crisis center taught her that sex is really significant. And our culture is talking out both sides of its mouth. It's saying that sex is nothing and that sexual abuse is, is the most heinous thing that can happen to you. And she's like, well, pick one. And, and we know which one we need to pick. We, need, we, we know that like sexual violation is egregious. That's because sex must be so much more significant than our culture is, is telling us. And then there were a, a whole bunch of you know, trans ideologies that were sort of coming into the rape crisis center. And she was like, no, I don't think that's right. And she reads Tom Holland's book and she reads about Me Too movement as a profoundly Christian thing. It started her on, on a journey of, and she's just written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And it's an absolute bestseller. And, and, um, and it's quite the cultural phenomenon. And, and she's talking about, you know, people getting in touch with her. She has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages from people. The book's only been out for a matter of months. From people mm. saying, thank you so much. You, you give me hope because I've been sold a lie all my life about sex and sexuality. And, and, you know, and, and I think she's pointing in very interesting directions as regards faith as well. She was just on the Jordan Peterson podcast and she corrected Peterson on a number of things that I think she needed to correct him on, um, especially as regards how feminism and this, uh, certainly this idea of the equality of the sexes has grown out of Christianity. It's a, it's a uniquely Christian thing. And she was, she was like preaching the gospel to um, Jordan Peterson on that. I'm not, I'm not saying Louise Perry is a, is a confessional Christian in, in that sense, but um, I think she is lighting the path back to Christian faith because mm -hmm. she, is, she is exposing the sinking sand uh, of our cultural moments. And, and she's also saying the Christianity that you so deride culture, the Christianity you, you so deride is actually the source of the, the values that you, you so prize. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people actually see the sinking sand and return to Christ. So the, there's, there's some hope for you. That is a great message of hope and it excites me. I know we've come to the end of our time. How can people follow you and what you're doing? Sure. So Speak Life is the ministry that we're on. So if you're, if you're a YouTube kind of a person, then you can go and subscribe to our channel, Speak Life UK. If you search for Speak Life, you should find us and subscribe and tap that bell. And uh, we've got a podcast that comes out a, a, couple, of week, a couple of times a week. Uh, but if you go to speaklife.org.uk, you'll find all our resources there. Thank you, Glenn, for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Travis. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Seven values that almost everyone thinks of as secular. Many think of Christianity as the opposite of them, but I think that Scrivener has presented a really good case showing not only is that viewpoint wrong, but that we would have never gotten to those kind of obvious and universal values without Christianity. From an apologetics standpoint, this is a very smart move because it forces those outside of the church to come to grips with just how much the values they hold dear. Even if they think of those values as profoundly opposed to Christianity, read unequal, cruel, coercive, ignorant, anti-science, restrictive, backwards, etc., are actually Christian values stripped of their Christian moorings. 
But perhaps as important for you and I, for believers, we need to ask ourselves, at what point are the accusations non-believers make against us true? Do we really take Jesus' values as our own? And do we really believe that these are Jesus' values? I think we give a tacit nod to it, but our lives actually indicate something entirely different. What do we say to people leaving the church because they don't think we believe the gospel after all? Have we let fear and a truncated gospel overwhelm our pursuit of Christ's mission with all of our lives? We believe that our cultural moment demands that we, the church, both collectively and individually, must rethink the ways that we view the world around us, including many of the things that we take for granted about the church as well as our culture. We need to reimagine what it means to be the church in this time and space. Then we need to redeploy in our everyday lives from work to school to family to neighbors to what we consume and where we spend our money, how we engage in civil life, and even how we use technology. Scrivener's book is the rethink in the category. It forces us to look at things in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have otherwise. Today, often we in the West as Christians are a sour bunch. We're a lot like Eeyore. Remember that? My kids would watch it all the time. Winnie the Pooh, but there's Eeyore just walking around feeling sorry for himself, feeling all depressed. But Scrivener gives us reasons for hope. And that doesn't mean, though, that the future is going to be easy. It won't be. But there is cause for hope. Because in the very ideas and structures arrayed against us, God has placed the seed of the devil's defeat in the victory of Christ. And that is amazing. I really do encourage you to pick up Glenn's book, The Air We Breathe. Read it. Let it soak in. You will be glad that you did. What questions do you have from this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at Travis at ApollosWater.org or connect with us through Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel, where you can watch this conversation and many of our other conversations. And please be sure to subscribe. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for watering the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.